So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation, the very beginning, and we're going to recover a little ground, not much. Um, Kind of mention a few of the things we talked about last week as introduction that we need, the tools we need to look at this book of Revelation, um, because it is, in its own way, unique. Now, I don't think unique meaning that you can, uh, you need to look at it differently or you need a different hermeneutic, but in the sense that it didn't fit tightly into certain categories. It didn't fit tightly into the epistle category. It looks a little bit like Paul, right? We're going to see that introduction this morning with uh, that um, grace and peace to you. Just that sounds familiar. And if you look at the end of Revelation, Revelation 22, it also will look really familiar. And then everything in between, you're going, well, and he says, it's a prophecy. And so in that way, um, if you've not been doing your daily reading in some of the prophetic books like Isaiah, like Daniel, Ezekiel, um, then hopefully that was helpful last week. And we're going to cover that a little bit together. But let me, before we open up in prayer, I'm just going to read the verses. Lord willing, we are going to march through those first eight verses, which really is the introduction telling us what we need to know, both uh, who got the vision uh, who's going to communicate it to us? Uh, that is first to the seven churches and then to us as well. Is also going to look at uh, the glory of the one who is coming in the topic of this book, which is Christ himself. So let's look. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things which must soon happen. And he indicated this. By sending it through his angel to his slave, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who is and was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Father, we do humbly come this morning, humble before you, knowing that it is those who are humble that you draw near, that you resist the proud. And so we recognize, Lord, what we are, even redeemed humans, if we are in Christ, but yet still in the flesh, yet still within the confines of the way that we see things, not being able to understand, not being able to see fully, but we just pray this morning that as we come humbly knowing our deficiencies, that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds as we look at what is to come, as we look to you and we worship you this morning and we see your greatness and even these things which, of course, words fail to even describe and we will fail this morning to completely comprehend, but we Look to you and know these things are true. You are the one who is and was and is to come. And we understand that that reality, that truth, should sober us in a way that it changes the way that we live. So help us do that as we look at the beginning of this revelation Of Christ. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. I want to begin by encouraging some of you because as you look at the book of Revelation, there are some people here 
who love mystery. There, there are some people here who are, who are drawn to movies that don't make sense to anybody else but you, right? You love to watch them multiple times. And I know some of you have just spent no time, right, watching a movie because you're just too busy doing things, right? You're the Home Depot. You're the, the doer, as they say. Uh, and there's some of you, if you do, my father-in-law is like this, he, he's watched the movie once, that's enough. And I'm going, I, I just watch and rewatch and I'm curious and I like to see something a little different. Uh, and as you come to study scripture, obviously you're interacting with it usually, hopefully, Lord willing, if we're kind of following along, uh, that we're reading over and over and over again. And I know some of you are going to, as we look at Revelation, probably get a little bogged down. This is a little hard. You're not as interested in all the idiosyncrasies and how it all fits together. But trust me, I think it'll be worth your while and stick with me because Revelation actually has everything in it. Not in every passage, but it's not just prophecy. If you remember last week, we talked a lot about this is, especially this passage, this section is going to be looking at the glories of not only God the Son, Jesus Christ, but the Father and the Spirit I mean, this should be the kind of little section, this introduction that should kind of pull you up and you've been living down on earth where everything is kind of simple and, and it's physical and, and it makes sense. And John starts to lift you up into something of the heavenlies where things you go, I don't even understand. But it should cause just as it's going to cause John to fall down in worship, uh, it should cause us to fall down and worship. And that's going to be a lot of this first chapter. The first three chapters is going to be a lot of actually very practical things. For those of you who are doers, don't, don't worry. We're going to get there. There's a lot for us to do, particularly this whole idea, which we're not going to interact too much this morning, but this idea of overcoming he wants this book to be more, and we looked at it last week, uh, more than just prophecy. You are overcomers. And all of this information is meant to be taken, absorbed, and not just sat and, you know, put together and try to find maps and graphs of how it all works together, potentially in the future, but it is to be absorbed into the way you live and that you actually would leave here and you would wake up tomorrow morning and live in light of eternity in a unique way because there is... This reality, Jesus is all of these things. We're going to see these titles, the Almighty, the Alpha, the Omega, and he is returning. And that really should change the way that we act. So I think there's a little bit of everything for, for everyone here as we march forward. But I understand some of these things you're going to be more interested in the details. You grab me afterwards and I'll give you more uh, details. And those of you who don't care, that's all right. Keep on keeping on and overcome. And I'm going to... And we're excited to look together. So last week, we talked about these important tools looking at the overall overarching uh, book of Revelation. That we needed this understanding of what we call a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. And for those of you who asked me afterwards, hermeneutics, simply talking about the art and the science of interpretation. So just simply, how do you read? How do you take those words and those sentences and those paragraphs and we understand them to be in a historical context and taken the way that they're written. And when, even in Revelation, things become symbolic, that we understand there's meaning behind those symbolism. And we don't want to just go and make everything symbolic. But we do understand it's going to be helpful to understand. We talked about seven. When it talks about seven spirits, it's going to be important when the text itself says, Jesus is holding these seven stars. And then in verse 20, he says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstamps are the seven, or excuse me, are, yeah, are the seven churches. A lot of times it explains what those things are, but we don't have to go outside of the text. We don't have to go into our own minds, I think, to figure out. Again, sometimes maybe we don't have 100% understanding, but I think we can gain quite a understanding. We also talked about the need of having a, comprehensive understanding of your Old and New Testament. So if you 
want to know what you should be reading along the way, I would say, and you could say the whole thing. I know Isaiah is a large book with 66 chapters, but certain sections in Isaiah would be very helpful along the way. In fact, we're going to see some of the language it's alluded to here because one of those interesting facts about Revelation is you're not going to see what in English we'd put in comma, quote, exact quotation, unquote, but you're going to see all of these allusions to Old Testament language, the Alpha, the Omega, the who is and was and who is to come. That's multiple times in, for example, the book of Isaiah. I gave the stat last week, about 404 verses in Revelation, 278. So well over half of the 404 verses, 278 allude to the Old Testament scriptures. And so as you read those sections in Isaiah or Ezekiel and say Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 will pop up uh, this morning a little bit with the, the phrase in verse 7. I think it'll help you go, oh, this isn't new, new, right? This is in a long line of the way the scriptures speak. And so it's just not uh, the language of the first century, but of all of biblical language from the very beginning in the books of Moses. And so we began looking at those things. We didn't get too much into the weeds. So we're going to kind of go back through these verses and look at them individually. And we'll see how far we get. But I do think it'll be a great time for us to prepare our hearts because it, like the whole book, is focused on the return of Christ and describing who he is. And that really should help us as we come to uh, not only who he is, but what he's done as he describes who the churches are and who John is as we come to that. So let's look here at these things that reveal. So revelation is this idea of revealing. Something has a, it has a sheet over it. It's covered and it's trying to pull off the sheet. The revelation, verse one, of Jesus Christ. And we're just gonna look at uh, five different things that it reveals about Jesus Christ. And Revelation reveals, first of all, that Jesus Christ, it reveals that he is as coming next. So Revelation reveals Jesus Christ as coming next. I use this language because I think it's probably helpful for you to think this way. Because we're going to encounter multiple times this idea of it being soon. I'm coming soon, or some of your translations will say, I am coming quickly. And it's that idea that you go, well, if I tell you I'm coming over soon, if I don't show up in the next hour, you might go, well, okay, he's a little bit late, but you'd expect me to come over that day. It's not that kind of language here. And we're going to see that. So look at uh, just the, the first few verses here. We'll kind of walk through and we'll, we'll talk about this. He, he reveals though, that this is the next thing that is going to happen. So this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the one doing the revealing. And of course, what's he revealing? Himself. And so he is revealing what is going to happen at the next big prophetic event. And so the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things which must soon. So again, that language, much soon or quickly will happen. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave, John. And so you see that common New Testament language of this is a slave of Christ. We use that language. And if you guys have a legacy standard Bible, they use that language. You can see a little paragraph in the beginning of the Bible, why they translate doulos more consistently or consistently, as opposed to a lot of translations that might have servant or bond servant, because it has that idea of you were a slave to sin. And we want to keep that kind of understanding of who John is, who we are, that you're no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to Christ. And that term does two things without going on a tangent on do loss, but it keeps you humble because that is not a very high rank within the household of the Roman Empire. But it also relates you to who owns you, who is the one that is the master. And he's saying in that way, of course, it lifts you up. I think it's, I think it's a helpful understanding, but it is to say this is this writing revealing Jesus Christ 
This apocalypse, which is the kind of word revelation, it, it doesn't mean, as we tired to think of uh, some tragic ending, uh, Armageddon and all those things. It really just has that basic understanding here of revealing. And he's going to do it through different means. You're going to see different players talking. You're going to see Jesus himself talking. You're going to see angels interacting with John, but he's revealing it to John the Apostle. Who is he? Well, we know him from the Gospels. You know what? him from his own gospel, the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He bore witness to the word of God and to witness of Jesus Christ. There's more to do than he is, I think, just witnessing his life, but that he is one who truly believes. He bears witness that Jesus truly existed and is truly the son of God, even to everything that he saw not only in the gospels, but of course here what he saw in what God gave him in this vision. And of course the promise that blessed is he who reads. And the idea of this would be read aloud within the churches. And those who hear the words of the prophecy, you're hearing them this morning, at least the beginning, and keep the things which are written in it for the time is near. That's why I think it's important. Revelation might have its challenges. As I said, it might be less interesting to some of you than others. But blessed is those who read and those who hear and these obey. And therefore I go, this is something that we should give our time to. Especially, I think, every generation that feels this. Because this idea of revealing Jesus Christ as coming next is this idea of imminency. So imminent. This is what is happening next. There, there is nothing that needs to happen before. And so John is going to write in a way that no other, if you look at the rest of your Bible, in a way that Isaiah cannot. Remember we talked about Daniel last week. Daniel's told up to, you know, seal up the scroll. And John says, don't seal up. Why? Because he's saying this is the next event for the time is near and again, it's not meant to say near in the sense of timing and that it's going to be a week or two or three. It's simply to say the next event. It's a little bit like if you had turned on a, uh, you go to a movie here and, you know, coming attractions and it says coming, you know, summer of 2024. Just saying it's, it's going to be here, right? This is that idea. It's coming and it's coming soon in that it is the next thing. I think they would understand it that way. I think there's always an immediacy. In other words, you don't know. Jesus reiterated that in the, um, all of the discourse. We don't know the time, right? The day or the hour, but it is to live in light of the return of Christ. Live in light of this reality. Whether it happens in your lifetime or not is not the right question. This doctrine of the return of Christ is to be on the forefront of the church because we need to remember he is returning. That's both encouraging. You know he's gonna come for his church. He's coming for you. He's coming for me. But also because you also understand that he's going to come and make things right. One of the things reading uh, Isaiah right now within my D group and you start to see those phrases and all of a sudden, and I don't know if I've ever noticed before reading Isaiah, but Isaiah has multiple passages where uh, it talks about that when the Messiah comes, he's going to wipe away every tear. And I thought, I have always thought of that as a revelation term. But again, it's that same thing, promise looking forward in Isaiah that when the Messiah comes, he's gonna right every wrong. It's impending. It is not a question of if. That's the big thing here. It's not a question of if, it's a question simply of when. And we're not to be concerned with necessarily the when. We're to be anchored in the, we understand it is impending. It could happen any moment, not to be the, the kind of maybe a scare tactic at all. It should be something that should excite. Nothing more in biblical prophecy needs to happen before Jesus comes. Again, it's this idea that this is the next thing on the calendar. It's not just found in Revelation either. You go to James chapter 5. You don't have to go there, but you can write it down. James chapter 5, uh, verses 7 and 8. He uses the same kind of theology, understanding that therefore he calls them, James, he says, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. 
So you get a little antsy. Just remember, Scripture calls you, commands you to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the soil, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. He doesn't control it, right? It just has to come until it's fully developed, fully matured. We're starting to see all the beans cut, the corn harvested. Same thing here. You be patient. Verse 8, strengthen your hearts. And he says this, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's that same idea. It's imminent. It's next. Hebrews 10, chapter, uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, saying, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. 1 Peter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound thinking, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. It's a good example right there. If you look at that whole chapter in 1 Peter chapter 4, it's moving you to say that reality is not meant to be tucked away, but is meant to sit on the front of your mind at all times, affecting the way you live. In this case, it should give you sound or sober thinking and should move you towards being prayerful. 1 John does something very Similar, First uh, John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. So the same phrase of kind of when we see the last days. It is say, this is the period from Christ's ascension, next event, Christ's return. It's the last hour. Just as if you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. All these things are happening it's imminent. It will happen. We're not to necessarily run around wondering, uh, be concerned of the time, the year, the season, but we need to understand it is imminent. Jesus is coming next. Keep that in mind because throughout this book, you're going to see different things in Revelation 1, 3, and then 22, 10. The book is bookended by the time is near. You see this idea of sooner, quickly, four different times. Chapter one, two, three, and then again at the end of the book. So when you see that, understand it is to say it is imminent. And it's not meant to be something that is, well, I'm concerned. The point is you're right with the Lord. And it is encouraging because it's a guarantee it will happen. So it reveals Jesus Christ is coming next and it should equal a massive encouragement. And there is a blessing when you keep these things, the coming, I think, in the front of your mind, keeping them present so that we don't get so distracted over and over and over again, worried about what's next. When we remember Christ is next, it will focus the way you spend your time in the way that you live. Secondly, and this is very theological, it reveals Jesus Christ as equally divine with the Father and the Spirit. There is no clearer statement on the deity of Christ or the deity of the Trinity than you will find here in verse 4. You say 4 and 5. We'll just kind of look at the Father and the Spirit here the way it's represented. But it goes on in verse 4. After the time is near, he's saying this is John. As it were, this is, um, obviously it's a message coming through John, but it's from John to the seven churches. He's recording it that are in Asia. So if you want, it actually is helpful visually, I think. Look at modern Turkey. Back of most of your Bibles are gonna have this map. Flip back there. You can do it now, I won't be offended. Um, but if you do, you're gonna see these seven churches. Uh, and you'll see Patmos, if it's the right map, you'll see it just off the coast. And what's interesting is it, it's basically the postal route. And so just go boom, 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 boom. And it gives you a visual and understanding of these are seven churches that are going to receive. I understand the seven angels in verse 20 is going to be messengers to those churches. Someone's going to take this message. Um, we'll get there when, uh, in a few weeks. But uh, that angel obviously could just simply be messenger. I think it has to do with human messengers there. 
we'll, we'll discuss that when we come to it. But there are seven real churches. Yes, they're going to represent something larger. Yes, I think there's no accident that it's the number seven, but it's the seven need to hear it. But they also do represent, um, which I think for not just them, but for the kind of churches that today need to hear the same things. We need to hear exactly what these seven churches were saying. And there's a sense in which you could say with that idea of seven being completeness, I think he's saying this is what you need to know, what you need to be warned about as we get to those different churches. And your church, our church, every church is going to be somewhere along those things. Doing well, maybe doing some things poorly, maybe needing to be admonished and rebuked and maybe being encouraged in other ways. Even the way that this message, say, take the church of Ephesus in chapter two, you see both of those things. They're doing well, but I have this against you that they've left their first love. So that's going to be I think really, really helpful and really practical as we get there. But they're all sitting in Asia and he says to them, grace to you and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come. Now that is one of those phrases. You're going to find it in the prophetic literature. You're going to find it throughout Isaiah. And it is talking about Yahweh. It is talking about God. He is the one who is and was and who is to come. And also he's saying from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This is one of those places where this gets a little bit more confusing, right? If we don't come in with an understanding of seven, we don't come in an understanding of the Jewish cultural way of which they use this as a representation of whole and complete or fullness. It becomes difficult because you go, well, are there seven? This is referring to the Holy Spirit. Are there seven different Holy Spirits? Well, I think you can look at the rest of scripture and go, there's not seven different Holy Spirits. But I do think it's probably there both in the sense of relating to the seven churches, which are all spirit-filled, right? Who's ministering to those churches, right? The spirit. But even more so, this is saying it is the full spirit of God that is before the throne. A few different commentaries. If you, you can write this in maybe the margin, but uh, Isaiah 11 too will talk about, um, some people talk the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit. And I can say, okay, I, I understand. Um, and again, that's interesting because I think Isaiah is using it in that same way in the sense that let me not pick six ways, not pick five ways, not four ways the Spirit ministers, but let me pick seven. Why? Because that's their number. That's a wholeness. Let me pick a dozen ways. Right, I talked about good things come in three. That's why a lot of sermons, this sermon has five, but right, three points in a poem. Why? I don't know why. Just we like things in threes. We like triplets. They like things in sevens. And I think that is where you simply understand he's talking about grace to you and peace. From whom? God the Father and God the Son. But what it reveals, because remember Revelation about Christ is that he is equally divine with the Father and the Spirit. In fact, you find over and over again where it almost gets a little bit, who's talking? I don't think that's accidental because they are the same in essence. Revelation 3.1 is a good place to go as well. If you want to just even, you can flip over there just to use the same thing because it talks about when it's addressing the church at Sardis. This is what, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, again, not that it's seven different spirits and not that it's, again, the seven different stars talking about those churches, but it is to say, it's another one of those phrases where you have that same thing of addressing, I think the whole complete, the Holy Spirit's being addressed. This idea, we're not gonna, park the car for too long, but it's important that as a church, right? There's this term that's thrown around a lot with, with orthodoxy, right? That we affirm the nature of the Trinity. It's something that often is very much, you could say, is assumed. And I understand because I had all kinds of questions. I was probably six or seven years old. I'm bugging mom and dad about communion. Why can't I take communion? I don't like being left out, I'm trying to explain what communion is. And then the real stumper was, Mom, I don't understand the Trinity. And for you parents, you've been there. 
You kind of look and go, me neither. Right? And maybe you've done your best and you, maybe you try to give an analogy and just let me tell you, it's not safe. Because almost every analogy is probably professing some heresy in church history. Um, you start to think of, I feel like a classic one is that it's like water, right? That goes from, if you heat it up, becomes gas. If you freeze it, it becomes ice. Um, and then if you uh, leave it as water, it is liquid, right? So it's one, but three. But then you go, well, but it's all water, right? And then you get into, just margin this if you don't know what modalism is, but this idea of modalism, which was deemed a heresy, which doesn't affirm that Christ is uniquely in essence. It's not that God puts a mask on and comes down as Jesus takes the mask on, goes back to heaven, and is the Father. They are distinct persons. Uh, if you want to have a fun time, it's worth, uh, I won't often mention YouTube in a sermon, but there is a channel called a Lutheran Satire. And if you do, go look up Bad Analogies uh, sometime later, and uh, you'll, you'll enjoy that because he goes through, in a, a humorous way, all the different bad analogies. And... Um, it's helpful though, right? It's kind of a fun way of teaching this that we need to affirm these things even if we don't have a full grasp, even if there's no good metaphor in nature. We confess these things. And so I think in the words of the Athanasius Creed are helpful, which is simply saying that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. That is, they are one, they are unity. But with that confession... We're neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is another. But the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Do we have a full grasp of it? No, but if you fully grasp the nature of an infinite God, you'd probably go, well, he's probably not an infinite being. But he is, and so there's certain things we don't fully grasp, but we do look at the scripture and say, this is back to hermeneutics. We understand these are all true, that they are one, there is one God, but he's distinct in his three persons. And each one of those persons is, in essence, their very being. And that early church history became very clear, and you have to have Jesus being not only fully man, but fully divine. And we assume that, but then you start getting through, especially say the book of Hebrews, the sacrificial system. Well, how does God become the just and the justifier? How can he punish sin and be holy and righteous, but also forgive, or the way it's going to term here, uh, release us from our sins is what John's going to say. Well, he does that because the mystery also, he'll mention that, is this nature of Christ. How does he do it? He does it in the Messiah who's fully God and fully man. He's able to bear our sin as a absolute perfect human being, but at the same time, he's perfect and holy God and is able to forgive sin infinitely. And so he is fully, yes, human, but fully divine. Equally divine with the Father and Spirit. That becomes important because Verse 8, we'll talk about at the end, is going to use the same language. And verse, chapter 22 is going to use the same language. And it's going to talk about God the Father, who was and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, and then I think in verse 8, talking about the Son, and very clearly talking about the Son in verse, chapter 22. And you see, oh, we can use this same language interchangeably in that way, that Jesus is, in essence, what the Father is, distinct in his, yes, role, but in essence, he is also co-eternal. Thirdly, as you look at that, again, that becomes really, really important throughout Christian history. And again, John doesn't let off, and I think it's an important thing to note, but Jesus is revealed as not only equally divine with the Father and the Spirit, but also as the rightful king. This becomes an important part because it is the coming king. And if we went through Matthew, and you see that continuity, both in Israel and the prophetic future, that there is coming a Messiah who will reign kingship despite how much it may offend your American sense. Kingship is 
important, who is the rightful king. And he says, Jesus is the rightful king. That's how he describes him here. Why? Because he is these things, these descriptions in verse five. He is one, the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is him who loves us to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and father, to him be the glory and might forever and ever. Amen. This is his rightful ruling. He is the rightful king to rule over all. He is firstly described here as, why is he rightful king? Well, he is a faithful witness. He is, and this is another term that's pulled from the Old Testament, but he is to say he is trustworthy. When you look around at the world, you look at troubling events, you look at personal uh, kind of tribulation or trial, or you just pop on the news, you are going to be tempted to fear. You're going to be tempted to wonder if all these promises are true. Is he returning? Will he make every wrong right? I don't know how he can make this thing that is so wicked or this thing that is so awful. How can he make it right? You look at certain things that seem so painful. How can he heal that wound? Well, because he is the faithful witness. He is the one who is giving testimony or witness to these things. And he is able to be trusted. Revelation 3, 14. Just another place where this is used within even Revelation. And we are going to go a lot of places with Revelation. It's just the nature of its book. So keep your, your thumbs stretched. But he's called in verse 14 when talking to the church in Laodicea and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, this is what the amen, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. That's what Paul said. He's the amen. He's the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God. And he is going to speak to that church. It's the same idea that he is faithful and true. He was there to testify from before the foundations of the world. This isn't a um, way I understand. uh, This isn't as if God is willy-nilly and kind of playing fast and loose with creation. If you look at John 17, you look at other passages and you understand the eternal nature of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, even in eternity past, I do not believe that Genesis 3 was a, oops, right, switch gears. But this is the plan that the son was to come and redeem a people for his name. He was there. He is the faithful and the true witness. It's a courtroom term. It's an illusion, really. Uh, many places, like I said, in Isaiah, but uh, Psalm 89, 36, talking about the Davidic covenant. says, once, uh, verse 35 of Psalm 89, Once I have sworn to, by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever. And his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon. And the witness in the sky is faithful. Sometimes when you look at the covenant language, you think of eternal covenants like the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament. Who is God making a covenant with? So we go back to Genesis 12, Genesis 15 and talk about the Abrahamic covenant. If a covenant, maybe in English we use the language of of contracts, but there's two parties, right? Making an agreement. How is that possible if it's only God? Because he puts Abraham to sleep. If you're familiar with that and look back, I think he does so because again, he's making an agreement with himself. And the son, he's saying he is a faithful witness to what God has promised. And what he's promised in the eternal covenant to Abraham, what he's promised in the eternal covenant of his son, the new covenant, which we're gonna celebrate in the Lord's table, there is a faithful witness to stand to say, this is true and this will, again, it's impending. It's not a question of if, but it's just a question of when. He is the faithful witness. But he's also, secondly there, the firstborn of the dead. Probably familiar with this term. You look at lots of New Testament passages, but it's to say he is the first fruit 
that comes. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about it this way, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Even within the Gospels, you can think, well, I, he's not the first. Wasn't Lazarus raised from the dead, right? So he's not the first first. Well, again, it's the way that they're using first as primary. Why? He's the first. Lazarus, when he's raised, sorry, Lazarus, he goes back someday into that tomb. Jesus is raised uniquely. He is the first. He is the primary. He's the first important, the firstborn from the dead. That is to say, when he is raised, you'll see the language in Revelation of the second death, there is no death. And in 1 Corinthians 15, that logic of Paul is to say, that's the importance of the resurrection, because if Christ isn't raised, how are you and I to be comforted? How are we to know that God will raise us? Well, we know because he raised Christ first. And the same thing, if once we are raised, again, there will be no death. So he's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Again, he's the rightful king because of what he has done. What has he done? He has loved us. He has been a faithful to his father, obedient to his father's will. And by his death, verse five, he has released us from sin, our sins by his blood. You know, sometimes different language is, is helpful. Maybe you don't think of it. You go, Christ has forgiven our sins. But I like here, and I think this is just a picture of being forgiven, being released. If you've been forgiven, your debt, your prisoner, what's the term you use? I've been forgiven my debt. I'm no longer here. I get released. It's that language. He's saying, through the death of Christ, through the blood of Christ, you have been released. That same language of slave, no longer, as Romans says, a slave to sin, but a slave to Christ. That gives him the right to be, as Colossians says, exalted above all. And he's done so with a purpose. You and I, it's not simply get out of hell, get out of punishment, but it's, no, it's more to be something. And he uses this language, the same language you're familiar with in Matthew. Again, there is a kingdom and a kingdom that is coming. That's huge in Revelation. He's made us to be a kingdom. And in that kingdom, priests to his God and Father. So he's made us into this idea of citizens of a kingdom, but even goes further. And a little bit of the Old Testament is helpful here. I was joking with my wife. I have a good friend. And I was listening to his sermon a little bit. And um, he, man, he went off. And I don't even have that much information in my head about priests. And he just went off on the Old Testament. I thought it was really helpful, but it was also like 30 minutes long. So I didn't know if I, I, I would bring that much. But it's important that you go back and understand the role of the priest. Uh, and it, it is very interesting as you look at the Old Testament, who they were. Uh, and it really isn't so much this idea of, I think of priesthood, I think of purity, clean. But then you go back and you start reading, particularly Leviticus, and the better description for the priest is the priest is a butcher. The priest is in blood up to his knees pretty much all day long. Why? Because he acts in Israel as the mediator. He's a mediator between Yahweh and Israel offering sacrifice to God. We know that doesn't, that's book of Hebrews, right? It doesn't, it's not permanent uh, from sin, but again, being obedient to the God, covering, looking forward to the final sacrifice. But this idea of he's made us priests, there's a sense in which you go, book of Hebrews, I have a priest, right? His name is Jesus. He is my high priest who not only is the one that is the priest, the mediator between God and man, but he is the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for us. But there's a sense in here, in the same way that Peter uses it, which there is the priesthood, the way the reformers talk, the priesthood of all believers. There's a sense in which you say, what do you mean we're all priests? It is to say that you don't need a human. You don't need a, a Jewish priest. You don't need Pastor Josh to come to 
and confess your sin to me. Why? Because you can go straight to God because you can go straight through Christ. You're able to offer sacrifice. You don't have to go to the temple. You don't have to go through some order of pastors or priests. That's this idea. In fact, it'll go on and talk about this same language that because we looked at Matthew, the, the veil is torn. He indicates the Old Testament priesthood is no longer necessary because Christ's sacrifice is the final sacrifice. But there's also, I think, another aspect to this of the priesthood of the believers. Obviously, you're chosen for a purpose. If you look at uh, Romans chapter 12, we're, we're to live in a way our lives as a living sacrifice. Again, we now are the ones in very direct nature offering up our lives as a sacrifice. We are offering up praise. We are offering up worship. We function as the one. In that sense, again, you put a little p, Christ is the high priest, of course, but it is to say his phrase here is to remind us he's made us for a purpose in a kingdom and made us to be now the ones who go to the Lord. You can go to him directly, to the God and Father. And of course, you can't get very far in Scripture. Definitely can't get very far in Revelation before he breaks out into kind of a doxology. To him be the glory and the might forever and ever Amen. That is to say, let it be. May God receive the glory. May Christ receive the glory. May he be the rightful king. And in that way, this is the day coming when what you hope will come to pass. It's not that Christ is not the rightful king now, but it is to say it will have its expression fully when he returns with building up his kingdom. And that's going to get into, I think, um, a really helpful understanding of that's where a proper understanding of, I think, the millennial kingdom becomes important. Why? Because the rightful king has a kingdom. He has a realm. And I think it makes sense for that realm to be, as you look at the Old Testament, on earth, and you have a place for it there in the millennium. Fourthly, not only is he coming next, this is the next event, equally divine with the Father and Spirit, the rightful king, but fourthly, he is coming, and I use this word clarity and judgment, uh, it is that he's coming in a way that no one can doubt. No one can question. No one can go, oh, I didn't know, or I didn't have enough evidence, or I'm not so sure. Nope. And this is prophetic language coming from other Old Testament passages as well. But behold, verse 7, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, and amen. So often in the New Testament... You have this word mystery. Paul likes it. Paul uses it a lot. Um, there, there was a mystery in the Old Testament and it's not a mystical word. It is simply to say that there was something that was hidden that is revealed. In other words, the church is a mystery. Uh, there's a sense in which Christ, the God-man, the gospel was a mystery because you're reading about so Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, just, just pick on those three because they're used a lot in Revelation. You're reading your Old Testament and you're going, well, how is this going to happen? It's a mystery. I don't know how God is going to put all of this together. You got to put yourself in the kind of Israelite sandal and figure out, I am, for hundreds of years, I have had different nations you know, whether it was the Babylonians, yeah, the Persians were nice. They kind of let us back. But at the same time, they're in the land. Rome takes over. When, how is Messiah going to come and make all things right? Of course, part of their answer is here. One of the confusions with the disciples was always, there's a lot of mili militaristic passages in the Old Testament. The, the son of man, the, the Daniel 7 son of man, doesn't come and die for his people, right? He comes in judgment. He comes in clarity. And that's what they are hoping for. And it's not that they were wrong. They just didn't understand the full mystery of Christ until after his resurrection. And both are vital. If you don't have the first coming of Christ, there is no salvation. But of course, we don't just want salvation in that sense of individual, but we want Christ to come back and make everything 
a restoration not just of humanity, but of all creation. And that mystery language, I think when you come here, you see, okay, there's not in this coming of Christ mystery. No one is gonna be go and say, I didn't see it. There seems to be this kind of universal understanding that when Christ come, no one is going to miss it. So you and I, we've talked about this, you know, you get COVID, you get all the crazy world things and you go, we know some things about the end. We know some trajectories of where the world is headed. We, we don't know everything. And my sneaking suspicion as I keep reading Revelation is, I know the general direction, but I'll probably in the end be a little surprised that, oh, you know, that's, that's how that happened. That, I didn't see it, but that makes total sense. And it'll make everything um, perfectly come together in a way that we will stand in awe of the way that God works everything together. There is absolute clarity. This kind of refers back to, and again, this is illusion because we don't have the quotes in Revelation, but Daniel 7, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, so Daniel, and behold, with clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and came near before him. So that same language of cloud. And then if you were to go to Matthew 24, verse 30, in the Olivet Discourse, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. So exact language here. Um, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Great glory. It's Matthew 24, verse 30. But there's also not only a return of Christ um, that is course, a good and exciting thing. Matthew references, or Jesus references it in Matthew, that there's mourning. And I think that's that idea here of judgment. Some mourning will be true repentance, but some will just be sheer terror. Because it says here, he is coming with the clouds. This idea that every eye will see him. And it says, even those who pierced him. Well, that's not just a reference to a Roman soldier who went to check to see if Jesus was truly physically dead. But a reference to Zechariah chapter 12, a reference to Israel, a reference to the house of David. So if you write this or you want to turn there, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Zechariah 12, verse 10, he says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And in that day, verse 11, there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadaramon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn, each family alone, the family of the house of David alone and their wives alone, the family of the house of Nathan alone, their wives alone, the family of the house of Levi alone, and their wives alone, the family of the Shemites alone, and their wives alone, all the families that remain, each family alone, and their wives alone. Hebrew just has a way of kind of boom, 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 boom. Um, just to emphasize, this will be mourning like you have not seen before. The kind of mourning that really cuts to the heart. Maybe you've had that where, you know, maybe you had a friend that you offended, but you didn't realize it. Right? And someone you really care about comes to you and says, well, this, I thought you meant this. And you just kind of are, I, I can't believe you, I thought that. I, I didn't mean that at all. We just kind of feel that, that piercing. Well, this is that times a thousand. Because they realize the promised Messiah was the very one whom they crucified. They're wondering, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And when he came, right, his own did not know him. But at this moment... They clearly see, they understand, it clicks, and there is mourning. Now, in this case, mourning that turns into repentance. And we're going to see that throughout the book of Revelation and the role of, of Israel that they play in the future. But also this idea of not only will they move, I think, towards repentance and understanding, but all the tribes, he says, of the earth, they're going to mourn over him. And there's some debate over here because it doesn't explicitly say but obviously, not all the tribes at this point in the coming of Christ repent and uh, repent of their, their sin. And of course, I think then you realize, well, their mourning is more of that idea of a worldly sorrow of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 7 here. 
and they are just terrified because they understand and he is revealed. And when we're going to look at the vision of the Son of Man, this is a terrifying sight. And you're going about your day and all of a sudden this happens. I would be terrified. I think apart from Christ, anyone should be terrified. And probably just like John, verse 17, when he falls at his feet like a dead man, that would be our response as well. But there's Christ then that we understand who will pick us up and will say, similarly, I think, do not fear. We can trust in what he has done for us. So it's coming in clarity. He's coming in judgment. So again, do you think you missed it, First Thessalonians? Nope, you didn't miss it. Christ has not come because when he does... Everyone will see these are the events that happen. It'll happen next. And he will come in clarity and judgment. Lastly, before we go to the Lord's table this morning, this is kind of a neat reference in relation to what we talked about within the Trinity. Because here in verse 8, the, the same language of the Father this beginning, the end, the one who is, the one who is to come, the Almighty, you see, I think, Christ here. And he's going to do it over and over again, talking of himself in multiple places of who he is, that he is, if you missed it, fully God. He is, speaking of, he wasn't a created being. The firstborn doesn't mean that he was created by God. Firstborn simply means that he is the uh, primary. He is that rightful ruler. But he describes himself as the alpha and the omega, which is to say simply the beginning and the end. The beginning of the alphabet, the end of the alphabet, says the Lord God, who was or who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty, which is a complete repeat of verse 4, talking about God the Father. And so you see that connection. If you flip, uh, not too far for, if you guys want to go to Revelation 22, Revelation 22, 13, and not surprising, you get a good book. Oftentimes the beginning reflects, uh, the, the end reflects the beginning. But in Revelation 22, 12, you see these similar kind of themes and topics pop back up. Behold, I am coming quickly or soon, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to his work. I am the Alpha the omega, the first, the last, the beginning, and the end. Why this becomes so powerful is because you see this phrase, particularly for a Jewish person, but even for us as you're reading scripture, if you were ever in doubt about who Christ is, you see this clarity because again, he's picking up language that uh, for someone would go, that's exactly how they described Yahweh. Isaiah 41.4 says, who has worked and done it, calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, Yahweh, am the first, and with the last, I am He. To say, He is Yahweh Himself, which again, for us, because we do a lot of assuming, because we grow up with this idea of the Trinity, maybe it doesn't hit us as powerful as it would hit them. Even those, you think in the early church, without all of the scriptures, very often, right? You do have, I think, at this point, prophetic gifts going around at this stage, but still to read with your own eyes and understand and to bring clarity that this isn't just, Jesus isn't just a man. And that's back to those debates on the Trinity, but he is fully God. Particularly, you understand that he is not just the Lord God or the way the Old Testament would talk about a divine being, Elohim, but he is the personal, he is the relational, he is the God of Israel, he is Yahweh. Another place you see this in the New Testament that I love when we preach through Mark, very beginning of Mark and verse two, he quotes Isaiah of Jesus. He says, behold, I send my messengers ahead of you who will prepare your way, talking about John the Baptist. Uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of, and he quotes from Isaiah, it's make the way ready, the way of Yahweh. Make his paths straight. And so we are, I think, tempted if you... Uh, ever get to a place where it's perfectly balanced, but you've almost can get to a place where you, I would say, to humanize Christ, right? There's a sense in which I understand and we sing songs and um, what a friend I have in Jesus. And that's true. That's, that's a biblical statement. But it's a way in which we don't ever want to think go so casual where you don't understand what kind of friend 
This is a sovereign friend. This is the alpha and the omega. This is the beginning and the end. Yes, praise the Lord. You are reconciled to him. But understand who he is. And if you understand who he is, this is gonna propel you forward in the rest of the book. What to expect as Christ is revealed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. As we look to the glories of Christ, of who he is, and we see his words, and everything that comes out of his words should be anchored and tethered to this reality of who he is. He is not one speaking without authority, one speaking casually. When he speaks to these churches, when he speaks to us through this book, then we understand it is the full authority and weight the full divine weight of who you are. Help us, Lord, that we cling to the things even when there are things we don't fully grasp. Help us cling to the things that we do and hold them tight. May we be encouraged this morning that it is impending, that the coming of Christ is coming, and there is blessing as we look forward to it and we prepare ourselves and when we live in light of it. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.